0: value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger, and I'm your host. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get more great investing content. If you're listening on YouTube, hit that like button on this video. Any other platform, your five-star rating and review are a great way to support the show. Thank you for your support. Let's dive into today's podcast topic, which I've calling key investing ratios: P/E, P/S, ROA, ROE, and gross margin. So, the idea for today's podcast comes from Twitter. Thank you, Solve Always, for this idea. So, again, if you follow me on Twitter, sometimes I'll ask, put out a call for ideas and questions, and your question or, or show idea might end up on the podcast. So we're discussing key investing ratios and my thoughts on how best to use them. So the question kind of goes along the lines of, we know that PE is the most used ratio, um, but they'd like more insight into other ratios I use that I find interesting and what they say about the company. They gave the ideas of return on equity, return on invested capital, asset turnover, debt service coverage, et cetera. So some of those I picked, some of them I didn't. because I, I want to focus on the ones I use and what I think about them. So the way I'm going to frame this show and these investing ratios is first I'll just define it, explain what it is, and then I'll kind of discuss how I use it in my investment process. And the focus that I will have throughout today's show is we're going to be using this idea of limits and breakpoints. okay? So there's certain limits that really matter, and then there, there's breakpoints that are really might define how you use them in your process. And today we're gonna be discussing five different ratios and they're the PE ratio, uh, which is price to earnings ratio, PS ratio, which is price to sales ratio, return on assets, ROA, return on equity, ROE, and gross margin. So we're gonna go one by one through these. I hope this will provide value to you and, and let's dive on in. So PE ratio. As the question posited, this is the most common ratio you hear about in investing. And so although the question focuses on other ratios, I'd like to at least start with the P-E ratio because it gives you a framework of how I'm also going to think through the other ratios. The P-E ratio is fairly simple. So this is your price to earnings ratio, P-E, and it's in that order because it's price divided by earnings. So. If you have a $100 price and $10 of earnings, then it's 100 divided by 10 equals 10. Your price to earnings ratio is 10. So that's kind of how the PE ratio works. It's in that order for a reason, price divided by earnings, PE ratio. So the general idea is that the lower the PE ratio is, the better. It means it's a cheaper company um, versus a high PE ratio represents an expensive company. And so you can have... All manner of different P.E. ratios and a negative P.E. ratio generally means that the earnings are negative because in order to have that formula work, um, price can never be negative. And so negative P.E. ratios are either written as negative or they're just written as nothing or blank because a negative P.E. ratio doesn't really make any sense. This is for companies that are earning a profit. So one reason that I like this ratio is that it represents profits. Um, There's a lot of flaws with accounting metrics with gap and gap accounting, which is generally acceptable accounting principles and how PE is calculated, how net income and earnings per share is calculated. There are flaws with it, but I find that using it is very helpful because it's at least a starting point that is calculated the same across every different type of company. And so having something that you can come back to and can compare companies in different industries with is very helpful. And I like PE ratio because it's a measure of cheapness. And I want to buy companies that are cheap. Um, I have a background in value investing. And so because of that, having some measure of relative price is helpful. And so both the PE ratio and the price to sales ratio, which I'll talk about next, are measures of cheapness versus expensiveness. So lower the better. Now, again, we're focusing on limits and breakpoints. And here is where you wanna have some idea of what you're looking for in advance. When you're looking at a company, The P.E. ratio is one data point. Um, If you have a P.E. ratio of 10, that means something. If you have a P.E. ratio of 20, that means something. If you have a P.E. ratio of 50, that means something. And so you're going to see this ratio over and over and over again. And what you wanna be able to do is compare companies, but it's not just relative. Just because a company has a P.E. ratio of 12 doesn't mean it's a better buy than a company with a P.E. ratio of 25. You need to understand that it's just one data point. However, it's important to have in the back of your mind some sort of benchmark that you're looking for. And for me, I'm going to go over that. And so I think about this in two ways. With the PE ratio, I have a goal and I have a max. So my goal is to buy stocks with a PE ratio less than ten. So this, you know, so whether that be eight, seven, five, nine. All those numbers work really well. 10 works really well. That's my goal. If I can find a stock that I like with a P.E. ratio less than 10, I feel really excited because to me that suggests I'm getting a cheap stock. And so cheapness is just one thing I'm looking for, but it's an important thing. You want to make sure not that you're getting a good deal, but you want to make sure that you're not overpaying. And I feel like by paying for a company at a P.E. less than 10, I can – Somewhat ensure I'm not overpaying, assuming I can check other boxes. However, just because my goal is to buy a stock with a P.E. less than 10 doesn't mean I won't pay more than that. But I have a break point. I have a limit. And for me, my personal limit is I don't want to pay more than a P.E. of 15 for a stock. So my goal is less than 10 and my max is 15. And what that translates to roughly is about an earnings yield of 6%, which means in order to get my 10% rate of return, I need at least 4% growth, assuming I'm not having to um, reserve some of that cash for growth. And usually you do, but generally by spending less than a PE of 15, I'm guaranteeing two things. The PE ratio of 10 of 15 is generally an average PE. So if I'm spending less than 15 on my stock, then that means that I'm getting it a company for less than average. Now I'm also gonna be trying to buy a company that's better than average in quality and better than average in management and other things, but I want a price that's less than average. And so I consider a PE of 15 to be what an average company should trade for. And so I'd like to spend less than an average company. And so that for me is my personal max. You're not going to see me spending a lot of money buying companies with PEs higher than 15. Um, And it might come down to making some you know, decisions here and there. Uh, But generally, that's a PE of 15 on trailing 12-month earnings. So it's not future earnings or anything like that. It's, you know, what were the reported earnings over the previous year? Um, Sometimes it's even their previous full year if I'm relatively lazy. You know, so if we're in November 2021, then that means for what were their earnings during 2020? Um, Sometimes it's the trailing 12 months. Sometimes it's just the previous year. And that gives me a level of conservatism that I'm comfortable with. Price to sales ratio. So price to sales ratio is calculated in a similar way. So again, let's assume we have a price of $100 per share, but that same company we were talking about with $10 in earnings has sales or revenue of $100. So therefore, the price to sales ratio would be one because you have a $100 price divided by $100 per share in revenue. So, the price to sales ratio, 100 divided by 100, is equal to 1. I would say, always, yeah, basically, always, the price to sales ratio is going to be lower than the price to earnings ratio, which means you need different limits and you need to understand different breakpoints. The price to sales ratio is going to be related to the earnings ratio based upon your operating margin. But operating margin is usually unstable and not very predictable. Sometimes operating margin would certainly move a lot more frequently than gross margin, which we're going to talk about later. Um, But long-term operating margins kind of affect what a long-term price-to-sales ratio is that you can justify. Um, I don't use price-to-sale a lot, but I mainly use it as an elimination criteria there will be times where earnings are negative. And so using a price to earnings ratio doesn't work, but you still want to consider the company for some reason, like it's incredibly high quality. It has new management. um, The negative earnings are temporary and you need some way of estimating long-term earnings power. Well, one way to do that is price to sales ratio. For instance, if the price... If you know the general operating margin's about 20%, then that means that earnings are going to be about 20% of sales on a regular, normalized basis. So in order to get a target price-to-sales ratio for that company, I can use the revenue to do that. And so if I said my goal of a PE ratio was less than 10, and I know the operating margin is 20%, then I can say my target price to sales ratio is less than two. And that's 10 times 20% is equal to two. So then less than two, a PE or a price to sales ratio less than two would be equivalent to a PE less than 10 on a normalized basis. And so that's just how that math would work out. If we take those same numbers, then it means that if I say my max PE for that company is less than 15, but maybe they're not reporting earnings right now, or there's some sort of temporary hiccup, and I'm trying to think on a longer-term basis, what's the earnings power, and we still say, okay, there's still a 20% operating margin is what I expect. Well, that means a price-to-sales ratio might be a max of three for that company. So this is kind of how I would break it down. And so that gives me a general limit. So, like, okay, I'm not going to pay more than two to three times sales with a 20% operating margin. But let's say the operating margin is higher. If the operating margin is 40%, then that means that I, maybe I don't pay more than four to six times sales because it's such a high operating margin. Or if I know the operating margin is really small, like let's say 10%, and of course these numbers are relative, you're going to have to do them yourself here, but price to sales has to be done this way, then that means, okay, my PE ratio target is 10, and so then my price to sales ratio target is 1, so I don't want to pay more than one time sales for this company if it's having a temporary earnings problem. Now, what is the absolute limit for me? Price to sales ratio of 10. I'm never gonna pay more than a price to sales ratio of 10 for a company because no matter what the margin is, you can't get more than 100% margin. 100% margin means you have no employees, no expenses, all of your revenue is just profit. And that just doesn't exist as a business. So if you pay a price to earn sales ratio of 10, it's going to be impossible for you to get a P.E. ratio of less than 10. It's basically impossible for you to get a P.E. ratio of less than 15 when you're paying a price to the sales ratio of 10. So the price to sales ratio of 10 is like the quintessential this company is way overvalued. No matter how good the company is, that price to sales ratio is just too high to justify. It doesn't give you any margin of safety. There's all sorts of things that could go wrong that could cause the investment thesis to fail. So for me, I'll never pay more than a price to sales ratio of 10. And then for each individual company, I would create my own max based upon their operating margins. So next up is return on assets assets or ROA. So return on assets is a really good metric. This basically says that regardless of the financial structure of the business whether you're using equity or debt what how many assets do you need in order to earn a return so this is a useful calculation what it's basically doing is it's taking your earnings and dividing it by the total assets so if you earn a million dollars and you require 10 million dollars of equipment to earn that million dollars then that's a 10% return on assets It doesn't care whether you're using debt or equity to own those productive assets. It's just saying you have $10 million in assets and regardless of how they're funded, you're earning a 10% return on assets. Now, I choose 10% because that's my goal. I want my goal for return on assets is 10% or more. And I think this is a good goal for a few reasons. One, the long-term return of the S&P 500 is about 10% per year. And so as an investor, I want to earn at least 10% a year. And I think a good baseline for that is it's hard for an investor, a long-term investor, to earn more than the business itself earns over the long term. So if your business only earns 8% per year, on its assets, it's going to be very hard for you as an investor to earn more than 8% per year if you hold it for a long enough time. And so I always assume I'm going to be holding stocks for a very long time, even if I don't. So it's very important um, that with this calculation, you need to set your return on asset minimum at about 10%. Now there's one exception and it's banks and it's because banks use an incredible amount of leverage and probably insurance companies need to go in there too. So if you have a financial company, return on assets is different, but for non-financial companies, my goal is at least 10%. Now, ideally it's 15% or more. So my, my, my baseline goal in investing is to, is to earn at least 10% a year. And so, the first step for that is to get at least a 10% return on assets. The second step is I can get myself on a margin of safety if I can have a 15% return on asset company. That extra 5% is a cushion in case future returns on assets are lower than the current returns on assets. So, I like having that cushion, but I don't really need it. And it's gonna tie in well when I discuss return on equity. So, I'm gonna go right into that. Return on equity now is your earnings or net income divided by the equity in the company. So let's use those same numbers before that we did. Assuming we have a million dollars in earnings and you have $10 million in assets, well now you have a few different ways to construct the company. That $10 million in assets could be 100% funded by equity in case return on assets will equal return on equity. Or you could also have debt in the business. And so for every amount of debt you bring into the business, the return on equity goes up. So for instance, if you have, I'm going to have to get out a calculator here. So let's pretend that out of the $10 million in assets, $1 million is funded by debt. So instead of one divided by 10, you have one divided by nine. So the return on equity is gonna be 11% while the return on assets is 10%. So that's a 10% of the balance sheet is covered by debt. Well, what if 20% of the balance sheet is covered by debt? So now we have one divided by eight and then the return on equity goes up to 12% and then this just continues and continues and continues. So for instance, let's say half of the balance sheet is covered by debt. And so you have 50% equity, 50% debt. It's going to be one divide 1 million divided by 5 million in equity is equal to a 20% return on equity. So by funding our balance sheet with half debt, we've been able to turn are $1 million in earnings, which represented 10% return on assets into a 20% return on equity. And this is the power of leverage. This is the power of using debt to boost the return on equity that shareholders can have. Now, it introduces risk, default risk, um, potential bankruptcy, all sorts of problems when you take on debt, but it can lead to a boost in the return on equity. So, Let's think about our break limits and break points here. My goal with return on equity is 15% or more. Okay. My minimum is 10%. I'm not going to buy a company with a return on equity less than 10%. For the same reason, I'm not going to buy a a, a company with an asset return on assets of 10% or less. However, you really want that to be 15% because when you have returns on equity of 15%, it gives you a strong ability to make sure that you earn at least 10% per year as an investor. And so because you're not always gonna get all the return of the company, especially if you're paying higher than book value for a company, um, that extra cushion in the return on equity really helps your investor. And ideally, you want at least a 20% return on equity. And so like, what am I talking about here? If I think about it, it's gonna be something like, here, let's see, one divided by Yeah, so how do I turn my return on asset numbers into the return on equity numbers? Basically, I'm talking about like a 33% leverage. So if my balance sheet is covered by one-third debt, two-thirds equity, I can turn a 10% return on asset number into a 15% return on equity. And I can turn a 15% return on asset number into something close to a 20% plus return on equity. And so I'm allowing for a little bit of financial leverage to give me that extra boost in return. And by only having a third of my balance sheet covered with debt, it limits the risk of the leverage while making sure that I really maximize my returns. Now, if my return on assets is 15% or more without any debt and I can earn return on equity of 15 to 20% without any debt. I'm fine with the company not using debt at all. That would be great. If they can grow and continuously grow with a return on equity higher than 15% and not have to use debt, I'm perfectly happy not trying to leverage that company up and just accepting the high returns on equity because it's such an efficient business. Now, it's hard to find businesses like that. Those are really important breakpoints, but those are kind of the numbers I'm looking for. Uh, I get really excited about companies with returns on equity of 15, 20, 25%. I don't need 30%, 40%, 50%, 100% returns on equity. That's unnecessary. You don't need the leverage, which could get you to those numbers, and you don't need the, the risk it can get you to those numbers. Often at those high numbers, um, you usually have some sort of competitive threat or something that could go wrong there um, or you'll soon face competition or the durability is not as high as you might think or they're unable to grow. Um, it's just really hard to have those numbers last for a very long time. It can happen. They exist. But I think a goal of the 15, 20% range is really what I'm targeting with return on equity. That brings us to gross margin. Now, gross margin is probably the most important number of the like different types of margin and internal balance sheet numbers that I spend some time looking at. Because what gross margin tells you, it tells you a lot about the competitive positioning of the business. Some would say that the higher the gross margin, the better. For instance, if you have an 80% gross margin business, it's going to be better than a 20% gross margin business. And that can be true, but it misses uh, the power of turnover. So if you're turning over your inventory very quickly, you can make the same amount of profit, um, net income profit, as you could – a company with high gross margins that doesn't turn over their inventory quickly. So the big difference here is going to be grocery stores versus like a, a diamond retailer. So diamond sales are going to have very high gross margins, but you're not going to sell lots and lots of diamonds every day. And grocery stores that are selling milk are going to sell the milk at very low gross margins, but they might clear out their stores every single week. And so that fast turnover allows them to price their products closer to the cost of production and still make a a sufficient profit. So gross margin doesn't tell the story on its own. However, it can still be useful. And what I have found is I like companies with higher gross margin because perhaps with the change in management, they might be able to increase turnover or it at least shows me that the company has some ability of pricing power in the business. Pricing power isn't everything. You can certainly have profitable businesses without pricing power, but I like companies with pricing power. And so when I think about gross margin, I really like the idea of greater than 50%. If you can have a gross margin greater than 50%, I feel good about that. Again, it doesn't need to be 80%. doesn't need to be 90%. There are companies I own that have like 80%, 90% growth margins, and those are really attractive because it means every dollar of growth is a lot more likely to drop to the bottom line. And if you can drive that growth, it's very valuable. But I also just want the growth margin high enough that I have the potential for operating leverage in the business, which means the more growth i get at the gross profit level while maintaining sgna which is your just more of your operating expenses if those could be maintained while increasing gross profit a lot of that gross profit can fall to the bottom line your net income and really drive higher than expected net income profits but Besides the absolute number or that relative number of 50% plus, I really look at stability. And stability is a lot more important than the absolute number. I would much rather have a 50% gross margin that never goes below 49% and never goes above 51% than an 80% gross margin that drops to 60% some years and goes up to 90% other years. The more stable the number the less cyclical the industry and the less competition that the company is facing. And so I want that number to be as stable as possible. I don't care as much what the number is as I do that. It's incredibly stable. And so the more stable it is and uh, focus compounding does a great coverage of this in terms of the coefficient of variation, the lower that is the lower the change in this number is the better the business. So and again, gross margin, I guess I didn't say what the, how to calculate it. If you take gross profit and divide it by total revenue, you get gross margin. So um, basically, if you're looking at a financial statement, you're going to have sales, cost of sales, gross profit. And basically, um, the only thing subtracted from revenue is the cost of sales, and that's going to be, you know, what is the cost of the product to produce, basically, Um, whether that be material cost and then some of the embedded cost of production, um, and it's not including overhead. So you have just the product cost, not including overhead, and that gives you kind of your gross margins. Uh, that's what I'm talking about here. And we're looking on a company-wide basis. You companies themselves will break it down for the individual products, but they're not going to show that to investors. Um, you're likely just to get the company-wide number here. So, Let's summarize those pieces all together so we can make sure we we remember them. So PE ratio, my goal is to buy with a PE less than 10, but the max I'm willing to pay is a PE of 15. Price to sales ratio, I'm going to calculate my target based upon the long-term operating margin that I expect, but regardless of company, I'm never gonna pay more than a price to sales ratio of 10. Return on assets, my goal is to buy at least 10% or higher, but ideally it's going to be 15% or higher. Um, Return on equity, the minimum is 10%, the goal is 15% plus, and ideally 20% plus. Gross margin, higher the better, but 15% is really what, 50%, 5-0 is really what I'm looking for, but more important than anything, stability is the most important thing. So, Focus on the limits. Focus on the breakpoints. I encourage you to think about this episode and write down for yourself your own strategy. What are your limits? What are your breakpoints? You need to put in the thoughts about with your strategy, where do they make sense for you? And I think it's very helpful to be disciplined in your investing by having these numbers, writing them down, and understanding where you are willing to go and where you aren't. Thank you for listening to today's show. Don't forget to like this video, like this podcast. So sub- hit that subscribe button and share it with a friend. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast